6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Not to be confused with eminent, that's with an A, eminent, that God is not only transcendent far above us, but that He's always with us and active on our behalf. Means He's always present with us. That's not what we're talking about here. Nor should it be confused with eminent in the sense of a title of honor. Those are two words that sound very similar. They're totally different. Eminent means what's next to be expected. The doctrine of eminence. Believers are taught throughout the New Testament to expect the Savior from heaven at any moment. He could interrupt this meeting. He might come back before we even through this evening. Or it might be years away. We don't know. In Philippians 3.20, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 9.28, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 5.6, Revelation 2.10. These are just a sampling all through the New Testament. You clearly get the idea we were taught to expect Him at any moment. That, that concept is called the doctrine of eminency. There's nothing that has to take place in the way. There are a lot of things that may happen, but they, not, nothing that needs to happen to precede Him returning. This expresses the hope and the warm spirit of expectancy. And that's the 1 Thessalonians 1.10 passage. This all should result in a victorious and purified life. By putting us in that position, he's expecting that to be the purification. We're expecting him to come at any moment. That means we ought to be behaving ourselves, not abusing that, okay? That's what 1 John 3, 2 and 3 is all about. Paul seemed to conclude himself among those who look for Christ's return. We see that here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to see it again in 2 Thessalonians when we get there. Timothy was admonished to keep his, his commandment without spot or unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy, his protege, was taught to expect him at any moment. 1 Timothy 6. Jewish conference reminded that yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The book in the epistle of the Hebrews. Jesus himself said, occupy till I come. See, the problem was the expectation of some were so strong they stopped work. Had to be exerted. They went up on a hilltop and waited for them to come back. You know, there's been those kind of characters all through history. Make fools of themselves. No, Jesus said, occupy till I come. See, they, they, they had to be exhorted to return to their jobs in 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll see that when we get there. And James, to have patience. Not, not to, you know, to, yes, he's coming at any moment, but in the meantime, you're supposed to be occupying. You should be Sending your kids to college. They should be planning careers, even though you're totally convinced that Jesus is going to come a week from Tuesday. No, no, no. Don't set dates. So there's two extremes that we encounter from this doctrine. What I call rapture-itis. Okay? And that's paralysis because you're expecting the rapture to come next Tuesday so you don't mow the lawn or whatever. You know. The other is rapture-mania. That goes the other way. Where you, you, know, you these guys that set dates... We're, prohi we're prohibited from setting dates. And yet there's all, I get manuscripts every week from somebody who's calculated the phase of the moon or whatever, and he's convinced that the, he's got it all figured out. You know, the Mayan calendar. No, no, no. I won't even go there. Okay. Rapturitis. 
You know, that's a uniquely American dementia. Just because the church will not go through the great tribulation, and we're going to take that up when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2. The church will not go through that unique period of time, great tribulation. Where do we get the arrogance to assume that we should escape what most of the body of Christ in most of the world has had to endure for most of the last 2,000 years? Where do we get the arrogance for that? Christ promises persecution. Call that tribulation with a small t. Most of the body of Christ and most of the world for most of the last 2,000 years had to endure this. Where do we get the arrogance to think we're not going to? Well, if we look around now, we begin to see it starting, don't we? Okay. The, then there's the date setters. Joachim of Flores had it all figured out, 1260. Millets and Cromerus and Joseph Mead in 1660. John Napier, the famous mathematician, had his theory in 1688. And we go on and on and on with these guys. All throughout history set dates. And William Miller in 1843. And he found that was wrong, so he moved it to 1844. And it, didn't, it, it still didn't happen. C.T. Russell in 1874. Wisenance, 88 Reasons for 1988. Those copies of that book are very inexpensive these days. And uh, Harold Camping back in 1994. And there's more coming. With, now that we're in a new millennium, you're going to have all kinds of people. Well, it's going to be 2012, you know, and so on. So I won't start. Those are all pagan sources. Nostradamus, pagan sources. Totally unreliable. Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father only. In fact, in the Mark rendering of that, not the Son, but the angels, but the Father only. Matthew 24, 40, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So if you got a time that you know he's not coming, watch out. That might, that, you know, anyway, all right. Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Luke 12, 40, Be therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. That's Luke's rendering of it. Acts 1, 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You know, what does Jesus have to do to get across to us? He doesn't want a state setting. Now, if we study the return of Christ... And we capture, if you take the trouble to try to catalog all the verses you can find on the return of Christ, you'll discover that they fall into two groups. I'm going to call one group the second coming, where he comes in power to set up his kingdom on the earth. And if we had the time, we could go through each one of these. They'll be in your notes if you want to go through, and I encourage you to do that, to go through each one of these, and you'll see clearly that those verses talk about him returning to the earth, setting up every eye shall see him, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of those. You'll also discover there's another bunch that are just the opposite of that. He doesn't come to the earth. He comes in the air. He does, not everybody sees him. Only those that are saved do. And you would discover they're different. And we could go through all of these one by one. I encourage you to do that on your own. They'll be in your notes, of course. Let me summarize them for you another way. There are two events. That second group I'm going to call the rapture. The first group, the second coming. In the rapture, there's the translation of the believers. The second coming, there's no translation involved. Not mentioned in those passages. In the rapture, the translated saints go to heaven. In the second coming, translated saints are with them to return to the earth. Well, wait a minute, that's opposite, isn't it? In the rapture, there's no judgment of the earth yet. The second coming, boy, there certainly is. Okay. 
The rapture is imminent, can happen at any moment. There are no signs that precede it. The second coming follows definite predicted signs. There's a 70th week of Daniel. In the middle of the week, there's a mid-course correction opportunity. There's more. De- there's all kinds of detail that have to precede his return. The battle of Armageddon, all of that. The Antichrist, all these things precede. We're going to sort that through when we get to 2 Thessalonians. But now, the, the general view by most scholars is the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. I'm going to let you judge that for yourself before the evening's over. I'll show you some things that you can come to your own conclusion. But clearly the second coming is predicted throughout the Old Testament, in any case. And the, I'm going to suggest even if the rapture is too, but it's sort of hidden. I'll show you that. The rapture is for believers only. The second coming affects all men on the earth. That's quite different, isn't it? Okay. The rapture occurs before the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. They're absolute opposites. The rapture has no mention of Satan. The second coming, Satan's bound for a thousand years. The rapture, he comes for his own. The second coming, he comes with his own. Those are quite distinctively different. In the rapture, he comes in the air. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. He sets up his kingdom on the earth. It's got a capital. You can find the floor plan of his palace in the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. The rapture, he claims his bride. Second coming, he comes with his bride. Ooh, that's different. In the rapture, only his own see him. It's interesting, Jesus, after, his, after the cross, Jesus is only handled by loving hands. And he's only seen by loving eyes. In the second coming, every eye shall see him. Rapture is, precedes the great tribulation. We'll talk about that in, the, in a later session of, of our epistles. The second coming, the millennium begins. The rapture, church believers only, and the second coming, most people, most scholars believe that the Old Testament saints are resurrected then, not at the rapture, at the second coming. That's why John the Baptist is a friend of the bridegroom and so forth. So I want to talk about another perspective here, and that's a profile. See, in the Hebrew hermeneutics, pattern is prophecy. The, the Hebrew uh, uh, analyst always looks for patterns. Jesus, in the last three, few, three verses of Matthew 23, before the famous Olivet Discord, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a tin gathereth her chickens under her wings. And that's the purpose of all history, right there. But the tragedy of all history, and ye would not. For centuries, God gave, his, gave them prophets and tell about his Messiah coming and all that. And when he shows up on the exact day that God said he was going to show up, they wouldn't accept him. That's the tragedy of all history. And behold, your house is left unto you desolate. But let me give you the triumph of all history. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they will say that. And Hosea will tell you when that's going to be. The last verse of the fifth chapter of Hosea, God speaking through Hosea says, I will go and return to my place. Now for God to say that, he must have left his place. I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. 
That's the purpose of the Great Tribulation. And we're going to deal with that specific topic when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we'll leave it for tonight. I want to get back to this Jewish wedding. The ketubah was the betrothal, payment of the purchase price. The bride was set apart. Set, that's what sanctified means. And we could go through all the background here if you wanted to. But the bridegroom departs to the father's house to prepare a room addition, typically, for his bride. The bride prepares for his eminent return. Then there's a surprise gathering, maybe at midnight. The bridegroom comes for his, for his bride. We have the actual hoopah, the wedding proper. There's a seven-day marriage supper. Oh, I think that's interesting. Uh, that's the examples of that all the way through the scripture. And that's when the marriage is fulfilled. The covenant is established, 1 Corinthians 11. The purchase price, 1 Corinthians 6. You see the parallel for the believer here? The bride is set apart. She's reminded of the covenant. The bridegroom's left for the father's house, but the escort comes to accompany him upon his return to gather his bride, and that's what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 4. So these are Old Testament patterns. The, the marriage thing being an example. There's another one with Enoch and the flood of Noah. What on earth am I talking about there? Well, I think we've got a slide on that, but basically the flood of Noah. There are three groups of people that faced the flood of Noah. Those that were drowned in the flood, right? Those that were preserved through the flood. And those that were removed from before the flood. Enoch. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. Isaac's absence after his offering. The Akedah, Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac go up the hill. Right? There's a ram substituted at the last minute. Abraham comes down with his two young men and gets the, two, and the donkey and they go home. Where's Isaac? He's edited out of the record until he's united with his bride two chapters later. What about Ruth? Where is she during the thrashing floor scene in the, fourth, in the third chapter of Ruth? At the feet of Boaz. Those are all models I invite you to examine very carefully. What, what about the fiery furnace in Daniel? Everybody knows the story of Daniel 3. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. There are three there, right? Where's Daniel? Daniel isn't there. Now, he was probably on a fair estate for the king or something. That's what they took advantage of while his absence. But the main point is, he may be a type of the church in the minds of many scholars. But let's get back to these three groups of Loma. We have those that perished the flood, those that are preserved through the flood, those that are moved prior to the flood. Enoch was born, according to Jewish tradition, on Hag Shavuot. He was translated on his birthday. Wow, where does that come from? No one's quite sure. The church was born in Hag Shavuot on the Feast of Pentecost. That's, that's a thing meaning the Feast of Pentecost. Everybody assumes that that was fulfilled in Acts 2 on the Feast of Pentecost. I harbor the suspicion that it may not be fulfilled yet. It's only half fulfilled. Is Enoch a type of the church? Well, Enoch was translated apparently on his birthday. Is the church going to be translated on Hag Shavuot? Wouldn't surprise me. I don't want to be guilty of setting dates, don't misunderstand me, but I'm going to watch that with great fascination. Every summer when we get through the Feast of Pentecost, I always like to watch and see if all my friends are around. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now what about Old Testament? I'm going to show you three verses, and I'll tell you quite up front that there are a lot of experts that do not agree with me, but I'm going to let you come to your own conclusions. We're going to look at Isaiah 26, verses 19 to 21. You may want to jot these down. Before you get your notes, you may want to do this sooner. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. And Psalm 27, 5. These are just three verses that I think are kind of interesting. Now, if you've studied prophecy, especially in the Psalms, you find these little tidbits tucked away in every nook and cranny. 
Well, let's take a look at Isaiah 26, starting about verse 19. Isaiah reads as follows, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Gosh, that sounds like a resurrection to me. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the slain. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. Shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Wow. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. In my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. Really? Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation that the great tribulation be passed or passed and so forth. Okay. Not bad. Kind of interesting. Let's take a look at Zephaniah 2.3. Seek the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Really? Wow. What could that make be a reference to? You decide. What about Psalm 27.5? For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up on a rock. And I, who, I know who that rock is. 1 Corinthians 10.4, that rock is Christ. Well, now there's some problems. What about amillennialism? Nine churches out of ten don't even believe in a millennium or a kingdom on the earth. Okay. Will the church enter the great tribulation? Boy, that's a big deal. That's complicated. Fortunately, the Thessalonian epistles will deal with this. When we get to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we'll zero in on this. So we've been here. We've looked through the promise, the process, the purpose. Now, it's these two areas, the total prophetic profile, which includes the seventh week of Daniel, and the problems. We're going to deal with those two in a subsequent session when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to go from here to chapter 5 next time. Which is going to have a lot to do with state setting, by the way. Because you'll discover that the Lord comes as a thief of the night to children of the night. Not of the day. You're children of the day. You won't be caught by surprise. Ooh, what's all that about? Next time. Then we go to three chapters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd of 2nd Thessalonians. The middle of those three chapters is one of the most important chapters in the epistles on eschatology. And we're going to carefully unpack that because it's widely misunderstood. And we'll get into that, and that'll deal with some of these other issues. But I want to peek ahead about the proposal at the end. How will all this affect you? How will it affect you? Now, the return of Christ to rule, you know, let's set the, my wife and I just published a book, The King, Power, and the Glory, hugely controversial to many, having huge, huge fruit being born all over the world. And, because it really deals head-on with the idea of the kingdom. There are over 1,845 references in the Old Testament. 17 books give prominence to the event, and most churches deny it's going to happen. They don't believe in a literal rule of Christ on the earth. 318 references in the New Testament. 216 chapters, 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament give prominence to that very event, that Christ is returning to the earth to rule. 
For every prophecy that Christ's first coming, there are eight of his second coming. A lot of them. Now, as you study Revelation 2 and 3, you get the prophetic profile of the churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These seven churches Jesus wrote letters to because we discover they typify the seven, among other things, seven different profiles that need correction, seven different uh, profiles that highlight the church in its historical place. The apostolic church is represented by Ephesus, we discover. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Pergamos, the church that married the world. Thyatira, the medieval church. Sardis, the denominational church. Philadelphia, the missionary church. Laodicea, the apostate church. Guess which era we're in. By the way, if these were in any other order, they wouldn't be profiling the history of the church. Once you study the letters and understand the theme of them and the remedies and so forth, you'll see that they profile church history phenomenally, accurately, and yet it's bizarre. So we discover, among other things, there is a prophetic role here. We notice that the first three, the promises to overcomer, are postscripted like a PS. They're outside the body of the letter. In the last four, they're inside the body of the letter. So somehow those, that divides them into two groups. We also discover that the second group has explicit references to the second coming. So that gives us a clue. The first three are strictly, I think they all started sequentially, but the last four endure to the end, interestingly enough. Now we know that one of them, Thyatira, has an explicit promise that if they don't get their act together, they're going to go into the Great Tribulation. Wow, that's rather surprising. There's one of these last four that's promised it will not go even see the time of the Great Tribulation. There's a couple of others that are problematical. But the main point is, where are you here? We're in the era, at least, of the Laodicean church. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. That's where we started with this thing. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus Christ, he either was God or wasn't God, either knew or didn't know. Okay? If he wasn't God and didn't know it, he's a lunatic. If he wasn't God and knew that he wasn't God, he's a liar. If he was God and didn't know it, that doesn't make sense. But if he was God and knew that he was, then he's our Lord. Take your pick. Where do you fit there? Okay? The ultimate monarchy. He is the king of the Jews. He's a racial king. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. I won't ask you if you have a mezuzah on your doorstep, but will he, would he be welcome in your home? Would he feel uncomfortable? He's the king of Israel. He's a national king. People overlook that. He's going to rule the planet Earth from the throne of David. The millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Wow. He's the king of all the ages. King of heaven, king of glory, king of kings, and lord of lords. And the question is, do you know him? Do you really know him? It's all about relationship, not about religion. He's the most anti-religious person that ever worked the earth. He had compassion for the worst sinners. Woman taken to the daughter, you name them, worst sinners. He had compassion, forgiveness. There's one group that he was vituperative of, violently antagonistic to, the professional religionists of that day. He's the most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth. So it's not about religion, it's about relationship. 
the more you know about the person, the living person of Jesus Christ, the more you love Him. And it's life, it's life transforming. He's what it's all about. Remember what He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. You, 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 you. Is he coming for you? That's the question. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we're flabbergasted as we realize that you loved us first. It was your initiative that brought us into an awareness of who you are. That this, our being right here is entirely a work of your hands. A drawing on your part of us to you. What a mystery that is why you should love us so much. And yet, Father, we cherish that love. We just pray, Father, that you would just through your Holy Spirit and, with, and, and through your word help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our King. Help us to begin to get a glimpse of the extremes that you've gone to that we might live. And how we love his appearing. How we yearn for the consummation of your program for mankind. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you would make us effective. Help us to occupy until you come. Help us to cherish each day that you tarry as another day that we might bear fruit for the kingdom. As we commit ourselves into your hands with absolutely no reservations whatsoever. We thank you, Father, that we are accepted in the Beloved, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.